Welcome to Clearly Quaker, an ongoing series of podcasts by Salem Quarterly Meeting, part of the Religious Society of Friends. Salem Quarterly Meeting is an association of seven Southern New Jersey Quaker meetings within Philadelphia Yearly Meeting. So it looks like the, uh, the hour is upon us. Uh, I wanted to say welcome to Woodstown for a long time, but uh, I'm going to be optimistic and say it anyway. Welcome to Salem Quarterly Meeting, and it's in Woodstown, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, Theoretically. Next, <laughs> next year in Jerusalem. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> uh, the last calendar year could be thought of to be quite depressing for a lot of people, um, in large part because, but in large part because of one person's activity and uh, responses during that year, friends asked if he could be with us here today, and George Lakey has graciously agreed to that. Um, the easy thing for me to say is that our guest certainly needs no introduction, but uh, you should know that uh, George is a, a sociologist, published author, uh, an active activist, and a concerned friend. And you've probably noticed he keeps doing all of that through 2020, keeping a smile on his face. I'm going to put uh, his latest uh, particulars from his CV in the chat. And you can look that up. It has websites and uh, URLs and addresses and titles and so forth. Um, George will entertain some questions at the end of his uh, talk. And uh, until then, the, I think the best thing to do is to mute everyone to keep those telephones from interrupting us, okay? Um, I have to say for months now, people have been asking me, what is he going to talk about? Uh, but I'm going to let George handle that all by himself. So uh, welcome, George. and. Um, Save your questions for the end, friends. I'm really glad uh, and grateful for this chance to share with you because it's about something that just affects our lives. So hugely as Quakers and, uh, and as non-Quakers, I mean, as, as people, as, as Methodists and as people just existing in this society, because its impact is so enormous. And I'm referring to polarization. And I'm having to start out with a, a confession of a kind because it's really my, my attitude toward polarization, my understanding of it was really has to do with the biggest professional mistake I've ever made in my life. Because sociologists are supposed to, and I love to notice about any social system whether it's as small as a family or whether it's as large as a society, we notice how coherent it is. We just automatically pick, pick, pick that up. How coherent is it as compared with how conflicted is it? And how's it handling its conflicts and so on? That's, that's a professional preoccupation. And so a dozen years ago, I was becoming very concerned about our country because of, it was already apparent a dozen years ago that we were not in good shape on the polarization side of things. It was growing and growing and intensifying and intensifying. And the activist part of me, the Quaker part of me was also saying, but look, um, this is bad news for uh, the realization of, of progress in the direction of Quaker testimonies because um, how can we make progress if everybody's screaming at each other and nobody's listening? <laughs> it's, it's impossible. And uh, so, so it was looking very grim to me. Um, and at the same time, I was researching for a book which has come out, it's called Viking Economics. I was researching the uh, Scandinavian uh, countries. I was very curious about what makes their systems work. Why is it that they operate on the highest level of any countries in the world, all the international ratings on things that Quakers are especially concerned about, uh, shared prosperity, equality, equality is a big one over there, um, social justice of, of, of all kinds, um, incarceration, how incarceration is handled, how poli poli police, for example, are not armed. There's so many ways that uh, they have more individual freedom. The Scandinavians, I've lived in Norway, they have way more individual freedom than we do 
Um, so in, in many, many indi indicators, um, they are at the top of the line of all the nations. So I was curious to know what's their secret sauce, like what, what, what enables them to do all that. And in order to understand it more fully, I needed to know their history. And that's where I was shocked because it contradicted what I thought about polarization. Because it, in Norway, in Sweden, in Denmark in the 1920s and leading up to the 20s and especially the 1930s, it was the period of the greatest polarization in those countries' histories. And that was also the period when they made their big leap forward, changing their societies in such a way as to deliver the, 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 the goodies that they now enjoy. So that, that rocked me. If I thought polarization meant, now I don't know about you, I don't actually like my convictions to be upset. <laughs> I'm not that eager to change my mind about something. <laughs> and yet the evidence, and I guess Quakers are uh, among the, the people in the world who believe in evidence, the evidence suggested that polarization was not a, a problem for them. In fact, the worst time of polarization, Nazis were marching on the streets of Oslo, of, of, of Sweden, Nazis were growing in Denmark and so on. Communists were growing, people organizing to you know, get the uh, proletariat uh, ready to assert its dictatorship and so on. Just all of that was going on. And it was the period when they made their breakthrough. So rocked back on my heels by that, I had to do a rethink. So I started thinking, well, what's happened in other countries? How about the US? 1930s, 1930s, period of great polarization, right? Nazis were able to fill Madison Square Garden. Tremendous growth of the Ku Klux Klan riding high, all of that stuff going on on the right. It was also the glory period of the American Communist Party. 1930s. But the 1930s was also the period of the greatest social progress in the direction of Quaker testimonies that happened in the first half of the 20th century for us, for the United States. That was our big, that was our breakthrough decade. Well, fast forward to the 60s, which many of you remember. <laughs> and you'll remember, you remember the Thanksgiving dinner problem, right? Of getting the relatives together, but does that mean they're gonna fight over Vietnam <laughs> or over civil rights? Tremendous, tremendous dissension in this country. A lot of bombing going on, a lot of uh, Nazis recurred. Um, I, I remember, going to a demonstration in Washington, D.C., an anti-Vietnam War demonstration with my uh, then wife, Barrett, who, a Norwegian, uh, who, uh, who was the one who got me to Norway to marry her. Um, she and I uh, had decided to settle in the U.S. And, and we were in Washington for this demonstration and, um, and James Baldwin was holding forth. He was giving a speech. And I don't know if you've seen that documentary. Some of you may remember actually seeing him in person, an amazing, amazing, passionate and incredibly uh, eloquent speaker. Uh, and Baldwin was holding forth and everybody was squeezed together because we were way too many people for the space. And um, Barrett's hip was right up against mine and suddenly it wasn't. And I turned to see what was going on and she was headed toward the concrete, she had fainted. And I quickly reached down and prevented her head from hitting the sidewalk. But she was out cold. Barrett, how are you doing? Barrett, Barrett, what is it, what is what? And she, uh, wasn't able to talk, but she opened her eyes. She pointed in that direction. I looked over in that direction and there were a group of young men with swastikas on their armbands. And she had not seen a swastika since being a little girl in occupied Norway. It was a traumatic experience, of course, for the Norwegians and she was triggered. Yes, we had our Nazis back. And of course the Ku Klux Klan going crazy, bombing churches all over Mississippi and so on. Uh, ter terrible, terrible time in terms of violence and polarization and 
The 60s, which actually overlapped into the 70s, was the greatest period of prog forward progress in terms of Quaker testimonies that we managed to pull off in the second half of the 20th century. All right, so I am, I am totally boggled. I'm glad nobody asked me to speak on this topic because I wouldn't have known what to say. <laughs> because on the one hand, I thought polarization is a bad thing. And on the other hand, here were countries that were doing, uh, that, 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 uh, that made breakthroughs or at least made substantial progress. We didn't make a breakthrough in the 30s or the 60s, but we made substantial progress uh, in the period of polarization. That's not supposed to happen. So I'm, I'm puzzled. Uh, by this time, uh, I am touring, uh, thanks to Quakers and others, in Scotland and England uh, with my book, Viking Economics. It came out by then. And I was staying with a Quaker who was giving me hospitality in Glasgow, Scotland, who happened to be um, a sculptor, a metal sculptor. He'd been a, an artist of various kinds and decided metal sculpture was his thing. And I was wandering around his house just marveling at the beautiful, beautiful sculptures that were all over the place. And I, I said, how do you do this? I don't understand. Metal is so, metal is so uh, rigid. <laughs> how do you make it be artful in the way you're doing it? And he said, oh, let me show you. Come on, George. So out through the kitchen we go into the backyard, that's where his studio is. He opens the door and proudly shows me his forge, this big forge sitting there. And he says, yeah, I had to apprentice with a blacksmith to find out how to, how to work with metal. Because you're quite right. Metal doesn't want to do what you want to do. You have to melt it in order to get it to do what you want it to do. And when it gets hot enough, the, uh, the, 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 the crystals break down and it becomes possible for it to change. I said, thank you, <laughs> John, this is what I needed. I needed a metaphor to be able to wrap my mind around what the evidence has been telling me. Polarization is the blacksmith's forge for society. It breaks down old institutions. It erodes, it, it, it fires up those norms and, and, and melts them. And what comes out of that is hard to predict, but there it is. There's change. There's change. Now, it's not that a blacksmith's forge has an opinion about what should be made from the, from the uh, sticky metal, <laughs> from, the, from the, the soft metal, right? It, it, it could be horseshoes, it could be junk, it could be gorgeous sculpture like John Creed makes. The forge couldn't care less. It just does its heating up. And I thought, well, isn't that just like polarization? Because polarization itself, as a forge, as a force, doesn't care what the outcome is. In Germany and in Italy, at the very same time as the Scandinavians' forges were heating up those societies, Germany and Italy also had forges heating up their societies. Tremendous polarization going on in Germany and Italy. And we all know what happened in Germany, fascism, Hitler, Nazi, the Nazi version of fascism, and they got Hitler. And in Italy, it was uh, Mussolini who came to power. So, it's, so what polarization is, now I understand, is not a terrible thing. Polarization is simply the forge heating stuff up. And what we do with the soft and gooey metal is up to us. It's up to us. So we can do, uh, we can have an outcome like Germany's or Italy's, or we can have an outcome like the Scandinavians. We have some experience with it here and we got some good outcome out from it. But it is an opportunity 
rather than uh, a predetermined having a predetermined outcome. And then, of course, being a Quaker, I had to think about Quaker history. Well, in 17th century England, those folks talk about polarization. They had a civil war, an out and out civil war. They beheaded their king at the time when Quakerism was birthed. And Quakerism grew like mad in that polarized time. And some of those Quakers then went to Puritan Massachusetts where there was no polarization, tight, tight control by the Puritans. And Quakers brought a brought the forge with them and polarized Puritan society such that they could no longer have their uh, cozy, uh, they were a kind of Taliban outfit. <laughs> the religious leadership and the, and the political leadership was one. Right, and uh, a theocracy is what they had in Puritan Massachusetts, and Quakers thought that that was uh, not in accordance with God's will, and Quakers uh, broke it up by polarizing the Puritans themselves. So this, uh, you, you, I'm sure you, you're following, and I'll, I'll give you lots of chance for questions. Um, th this line of of uh, evidence-based reasoning that contradicted for me. Uh, a, a, a very important uh, belief that I had that polarization is a bad thing. Polarization is what it is. Now, where it comes from, there's also back and forth about where it comes from. Uh, the the uh, view that I'm most impressed by, uh, it's footnoted in my books, is uh, is put forth by some some political scientists who 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 tried various curves to see if the curves would match the curves of polarization. Because polarization obviously goes up and down. Some of you will remember the 50s or certainly stories of the 50s when we used to tease each other that we were God's frozen people. <laughs> it was bipartisan foreign policy. It was bipartisan everything. You know, people would make speeches, in the Senate and then uh, hug each other in the co-room after where they didn't hug, but anyway, backslap in the co-room. It was all hunky-dory in those days. Uh, the curve of polarization goes up and down, up and down. Uh, so these political scientists wondered, why does it go up and why does it go down? And they found the variable that went up and down and fitted the curve uh, pretty uh, uh, in a tight match was the curve of economic inequality. So for people who aren't Quakers and think inequality is great, <laughs> thank goodness inequality doesn't have a great reputation right now. But anyway, uh, inequality is a problem if, uh, if it's driving polarization. And it seems to be what's, what accounts for the tremendous in, in, inequality. And the reason why it's important to keep track of what it is that gets the blacksmith's forge really going, the inequality, the economic inequality, is that what we see uh, at the top levels of our country is the levers being pushed for more and more inequality. And uh, plus the COVID impact, which is more inequality. So what we can expect to see in the coming years is increased inequality. And Biden's trying to remedy that, of course, now, but he, he probably won't get very far with that. Uh, so what we can expect to see is more and more uh, inequality, therefore more and more polarization, more and more of the negative stuff that goes with that, the violence and the screaming at each other and the, uh, the splits within organizations, splits within who knows, Quaker meetings, whatever, um, alienation um, in, within families and so on. We'll see all that unfold even more so within, uh, within uh, our, our, our life experience. And at the same time, we will see increasing opportunity for change. We will see, for example, something like the Black Lives Matter uh, movement demonstrated very recently when 
in basically white small towns in Kansas <laughs> and Pennsylvania and various states, there were you know, white people going out and demonstrating, first demonstration in whatever, and in, in living memory uh, on behalf of Black Lives Matters. Stuff that wouldn't have happened 10 years ago, couldn't have happened 10, certainly not 20 years ago. And it was happening now as a response to the killing of George Floyd. It was happening, now I understand, or now my point of view is, it was happening because the forge is working and the forge can produce larger and larger social movements that do impact the small towns, that do impact even NASCAR and the National Football League. Oh my gosh, whoever thought that that would happen. So this is an amazing, amazing period we live in. We can identify with early Quakers in a way that would have been very hard to do 50 years ago. We can identify with people in polarized societies that made the most of their opportunity, like the Scandinavians did in the 20s and 30s. We can identify with them. We can ask ourselves, how can we do the best practices that are done in periods of polarization and not fall into the worst practices that are done in polarization, in polarized times? So that, uh, to, to me, that is both a political question and it's also a deeply spiritual question because polarization is hard on our spirits. There is a spirit, as uh, Naylor said, that delights to do no evil. <laughs> and it's not that polarization requires evil. Dr. King showed us that. Gandhi showed us that. Jesus showed us that. It's not that prophetic confrontation and stirring things up and creating conflict is evil in any way. If, if Jesus didn't make that clear, I don't know what. He even is reported to have said, I come not to bring peace, but a sword. And that's certainly what George Fox was about. So I'm not, uh, so please, please be clear about that. But I, I am saying that for most of us, even temperamentally, it's hard on us to go through that. I cried my way through January 6th. <laughs> I watched it on TV, as probably many of you did, and I cried my way through it. It's very hard on me to watch people being that hard on each other. There's a part of me that responds way more to kindness than to threat. So for me, it's a spiritual challenge as well. I've been blessed because I was around at the time of the 60s and I could join the civil rights movement and I could learn from my peers then that it's possible to do what early Quakers were doing <laughs> and be prophetic, be prophetic and be, you know, be Christ-like in, in that situation. Uh, so I, I had that capacity to wage conflict, but it's also, there's, there's a part of me that is at the same time um, divided about it and, 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 and wanting to breathe deeply and, you know, see some kindness there somewhere. So where does that uh, leave me? Because I want to leave time for questions. Uh, it leaves me thinking that this, it, this moment in American history is a phenomenal opportunity for Quakers, A, to uh, get back to basics, the basics of our faith, which grew in this polarized 17th century, and the basics of Christianity and the basics of all the spirit-led people like Gandhi, who found it possible to be, well, what Quakers called waging the Lamb's War, right? We can use this opportunity because it's right here anyway, <laughs> it's not going away. So we can use the opportunity to have our internal forges working and, 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 and be in touch with our own meetings 
forge, which may, the fire may have gotten awfully low. Somebody banked the coals <laughs> before going to sleep or something. And, uh, and re, not only revisit, but identify with, and then learn the lessons of, and practice up the practices of people who are caught in tumult and decide to make the most of it. George Fox just stands as a beacon for me in this way, over and over again. At the top of Pendle Hill, he had this vision in which he said he saw an ocean of darkness. The metaphor for him in his day for you know, evil, right? He saw an ocean of it. But the thing was, he also saw an ocean of light, of beneficence, clarity. And that, that ocean was bigger and engulfed the dark, the dark one. George Fox, as far as I can make him out, was a warrior in his temperament. He had that going for him, lucky man. When, when he would speak in a market square and then get off the box or whatever they spoke on in the market squares, Quakers loved speaking in market squares in those days. Um, uh, I guess we would be doing it in, uh, in uh, shopping centers. I, I have led Quakers to do that in shopping centers. Um, when he would get off the box, uh, young soldiers would be uh, all over him, talking, talking, very attracted to him. They sensed this warrior's uh, personality in George Fox, so much so that he was offered a commission in Cromwell's army because a, a, a superior military officer saw also the warrior in Fox. We, we need to rekindle uh, or kindle for the first time that, uh, that, that ability, that, that, that set of practices, that, that capacity and most of all support each other in it so that that person who might otherwise strike you as annoying <laughs> but may have some of that uh, warrior capacity or temperament might be somebody who needs support in order to keep feeling the forge but headed in a, in a more positive direction perhaps these are just all things to get you started. I'm very keen to get your questions and, uh, and pushbacks because if I wanna be a nonviolent warrior, I better be ready for pushback, right? So I'm very ready for that. And uh, let's hear from you. Um, you say that we need periods of, I guess you could say, you'd say a conflict, but of course, I would imagine the goal of the con conflict is to develop a, a period of peace that is more enlightened. Can you speak to how, how frequently the periods of conflict should theoretically be and how frequently, how much the rest periods need, if, if you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the, the best evidence uh, I have for successful use of the polarization is the, the uh, Nordic countries. Uh, because they had the biggest polarization in modern times for them and in their history. And they went through it. They came out the other side. The forge worked for them and they had these amazing societies. So uh, what we, one of the things we can learn from them is that they, they found that in order to uh, make the progress, use the opportunity well, they needed to overthrow the dominance of their economic elite because they figured out it was actually the economic elite that was dominating the political and economic decision-making in their countries. And in order to, uh, which was therefore responsible for the inequality, right? So in order to handle that, they needed to push the uh, economic elite out of the way. So they, they learned from the Bolsheviks next door in Russia that one way to do that is to kill them or whatever. They didn't want to go that way because they were strongly attracted to nonviolence. So they said, no, 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 we'll just push them out of the way. Say, you've given the leadership in this country for a couple of centuries, no more. We are now in charge and we have a different vision 
of the kind of society we want from the vision that you've been implementing. So that's what the Scandinavians did. They pushed the, uh, the, that political block. Uh, that of course involved lots of conflict because I mean, the, what, what, do, what do economic elites do to defend themselves? They, you know, they, they get uh, people arrested who are editors of union newspapers or leaders of their co-ops or something, they get people arrested and then they bring out the troops. In 1931 in Sweden, um, there, there was a strike going on and the elite pulled out the troops to, and the troops shot a whole bunch of unarmed uh, demonstrators and the labor movement as a whole and with lots of other S Swedes joining in did a general strike in the whole country. And that's what pushed the economic elite out. So we're talking about real power, of course. And uh, by dislodging the economic elite from its dominance, they were then able to bring in a new vision of equality and, and with all the enormous payoff that they have today, they have so much that we so much want. Majorities polled want the kind of thing that the Scandinavians have and we're denied it. Uh, majorities of Americans, for example, say they want Medicare for all. They've had that for 50 years. They've had it longer than 50 years and they can't, they can't for the life of them understand why we don't have it. It's by far you know, the best practice in the world and we don't have it because we're not allowed to have it and we're not allowed to have it because our economic elite says no. And that, that's just one example of multiple, multiple examples uh, that we could go down by Quaker testimony after testimony, showing why we are denied the things that we want uh, because the economic elite doesn't find it in their interest to do that. So it looks to me like the Nordic, uh, thank goodness, the Nordics uh, were able to create a model that we can then simply uh, adopt uh, and push the economic elite out. And then the, the result, among the many international ratings, there are so many ratings now, um, and among the many ratings is a rating of peacefulness, peaceful society, and the Scandinavians are right at the top. Peaceful societies, amazing, thoughtful dialogue. I think that uh, Carlton, you talked about uh, enlightened. Um, it, in Sweden, for example, if you have a jazzy new idea, uh, it, it's, very, it's amazingly easy to get national consideration for it. You find some people who are willing to debate it. You set up a debate in your town, but you get the newspaper to cover it. And then you get another town to get the newspaper to cover it. And you get people drawn into that. And when enough people have uh, debated it sufficiently to think, oh, this is a worthwhile idea, then the parliament sets up a commission to investigate it, bring they they commission studies by the university uh, uh, university scholars who have to do with that particular idea, and then they you know they they do their studies, come out da da da, and eventually becomes a parliamentary resolution. And most of the decisions made in the Swedish Parliament are like eighty percent, ninety percent. I mean, virtually consensus um, because they've gone through that process. It's the most enlightened. Um, uh, decision-making, political decision-making process on the planet. And, but there's no way they could have done that if their economic elite were running the place. So one of the things we need to do is just face the facts of our, uh, you know, of our sad uh, political situation that we are run by this economic elite. Um, the uh, Princeton University oligarchy study shows it very clearly. Uh, BBC, they didn't use the word oligarchy. They danced around that a little bit. So the BBC in covering it said, it's the oligarchy <laughs> that Princeton has discovered. So uh, you can Google it anytime, just Google uh, Princeton oligarchy study. You can read it for yourself. Um, so it does mean that Quakers believe in truth, right? So we will go ahead and look at the truth. And if that is the truth about our society, then that then we can roll up our sleeves and go after the economic elite. We are many, they are few. And we can do that. And then we can have the enlightenment that, you, that, you're, that you're interested in, the actual rational consideration and evidence-based discussion and so on and so on, back and forth, because we don't have people taking advantage of uh, irrational, irrational currents uh, in society, which of course is now, uh, has been running rampant and you know accounts for what 
over half a million deaths and, from COVID and so on. Uh, there are people in our country in whose interest it is to keep irrationality going high and they will increase the degree of irrationality. We'll, we'll all be queuing on people <laughs> if they have their way. <laughs> so uh, what we have is, though is the opportunity to, uh, to have in this tiny laboratory in North, Northwestern Europe, uh, a successful example, a lab, kind of a laboratory, I think. And then uh, what we need to do is um, learn from that and learn from our own experience, our, the amazing experience of our civil rights movement, which teaches us a lot about how to take on the Ku Klux Klan, how, you know, how, to, take on, how to take on the violent forces of the militant right. Do you think that uh, the relative size of Scandinavia versus the United States has an impact? I mean, we, Scandinavia equals about New England in terms of the numbers of people involved. I just myself have been finding the U.S. to be almost unmanageably large. Well, um, I would definitely say it made it easier and it helps us to understand why they could pull it off when they were having their polarization in the 30s, 20s and 30s, and we could not when we were having our polarization in the 20s and 30s. Another difference is um, that, that uh, in the US there was racism to work as a counter. You know, the economic elite could use racism as a way of preventing us from getting the degree of unity that we needed to make the big differences. So we made some difference. We should be encouraged by the 30s and at the same time, uh, I agree that it was easier. There are other reasons too why it was easier for them to to get there first. But uh, noticing that somebody else gets there first doesn't mean that you can't do it yourself. In all the professions that I know of, there's such a thing as best practices, and uh, uh, corporate executives, managers, all kinds of you know lawyers doctors, everybody's curious about what are the best practices? If I'm going to do heart surgery, what are the best practices? What are the best practices? What are the best practices? They're all fascinated with best practices. Well, the best practice uh, that I might be interested in if I'm a heart surgeon might have been invented in wherever, Belgium, let's say, because the circumstances were favorable to, for that invention to happen there before it happened somewhere else. But I don't say, well, they speak French in Belgium or they, they're a small country or something, so I can't do heart surgery, you know, uh, like that, right? I mean, you're just, you're grateful for a best practice wherever it happens to originate. And it generally originates in a place where it's circumstances make it easier to invent something there. And then you grab it and run with it if you want to become a, a highly effective heart surgeon. And I want us to be highly effective social changers. And so we'll grab, uh, I want to grab inventions wherever they have uh, started, whether in enormous China or, in, you know, in, in, or, or tiny Denmark. <laughs> but I'm, I, I'm an equal opportunity grabber of great ideas, <laughs> no matter where they happen to have started. The U.S. actually used to, uh, in my boyhood, uh, used to say we were the best in the world at everything. And we were so big compared with a lot of little countries. And we used to say, but we know how to do this. We know how to do that. We know how to do this. And we know how to do that. Right? And we're, we're amazing. We have a wonderful record of invention and innovation and of pulling things off and Eisenhower dared to do an interstate highway system that was really quite remarkable. Uh, now we, uh, the civil engineers give us a C minus for our infrastructure. We have a terrible infrastructure compared with Scandinavia, tiny countries, but we used to have a much better infrastructure than they did. And those are all results, uh, not of size of country, but of who's making the decisions about the use of resources. Uh, and by what criteria? Are they wanting the, the well-being of the whole? Is that their guiding principle? Or are they wanting to enrich themselves <laughs> and, and inflate their own power? And uh, 
you can pretty well predict the decision making in our country now and for a while uh, by just answering that question. Are those who run our country, the people behind the scenes, the, you know, Chase Bank, the whole deal, uh, are they making their decisions in the light of what benefits the whole country? What has eliminated poverty? I'm poverty. Poverty. It used to be said, uh, when I was a boy, I was told, the poor you shall always have with you. Jesus said it, and it's true. Always have poverty, so suck it up. So uh, the Scandinavians went ahead and pretty much gave up poverty. When they were less wealthy than the United States, and our poverty grows and grows and grows and grows, as our wealth grows and grows and grows and grows, and those countries, I, I'm telling you, they don't get it. Why would an immensely wealthy country like ours refuse to take care of our poverty? And it's because the decision-making is such. George, you uh, referred to <clears throat> It seems like the elite or the oligarchy uses racism, mm -hmm. manipulate the the middle uh, the, the blue collar worker or the uh, the proletariat. Right. And our country is so diverse with there uh, are numerous uh, uh, ethnicities. How do we get the proletariat? to realize they're being manipulated. Um, and how do we get that to change? There are a number of specific uh, uh, things that go into that strategy. And that's one reason why I wrote uh, the book, How We Win. That's my most recent one, because it, it uh, responds to that question. So I'll just give one, one piece of what, what's a, a longer series. Um, one, one piece is to project a vision that shows how blue-collar people would be better off if they supported a particular campaign. So, for example, um, oh, okay, so we could use the example of Medicare for All. When um, Medicare for All uh, was introduced as a concept, um, by Bernie Sanders, his campaign, uh, I mean, it's not that it was introduced by him, but anyway, when he, when he brought that into prominence in his first campaign, um, the, it, there was an influx of blue collar people into the support for that campaign. Um, think how many working class people have, have healthcare issues in their extended families. Uh, it, it's just, it's just tragic including people who vote for Trump because uh, they, they haven't had the alternative being, uh, being clearly offered in a way that was just could, could pierce the noise. Healthcare is a terrific example of how to pierce the noise. Hey, I know you, I know your family. How are things going with your sister-in-law? And so on and so on and so on. I mean, how are things going on for your aging folks? They couldn't get that test in time is that right? No. So it's, it's a lot of organizing that's needed based on having a vision. And one reason I love to talk about vision with Quakers is because we, for a, a few hundred years, really had a, had a reputation of being uh, one of the things that we brought to the social change table was vision, was a concern for vision. And uh, I think we could do that again. We could... Uh, uh, you know, work, work up our, our vision genes <laughs> and start offering visions that can be expressed in common sense terms. That's very important for blue collar people. I was brought up blue collar. I always wanted to comb through the visions and if people, and my eyes would glaze over, you know, if I didn't see there was a common sense dimension to it. And uh, we could we could learn to speak that language or get other people to speak it for us, uh, but we can also support the vision generation 
that makes all that possible. When the Green New Deal was first expressed by the Sunrise Movement, uh, folks in that sit-in in Pelosi's office, I'm very proud of the Sunrise students because uh, the, the Sunrise Movement was started by my students when I was at Swarthmore College. The, uh, they, they, it was after they graduated from college, but they were in touch with me and they organized that. And they made that big splash. You remember that initial splash? And um, the, so the pollsters ran right out to poll, uh, find out what people thought of the Green New Deal before it was even really clear what that would be. And the, the first take on the part of Republicans and Democrats was very positive, including a majority of Republicans thought, whoa, Green New Deal, that sounds good. And that's because the environmental concern, which Quakers have been carrying for so long, Earth Care, right, was put in a vision that included jobs, included good jobs, well-paying jobs that would have security and, you know, and, and so on. Uh, and and it, was it was placed in a common sense framework that on first hearing, Republicans thought, wow, that sounds, that sounds like a Great leap forward. Let's do, let's do a Green New Deal. So then Fox News and the other organs that are supported by the economic elite had to commit, had to work overtime to pull the Republican following, including the working class Republican following, away from the state <laughs> because the, you know Fox News knew that Green New Deal w w was, uh, you know what they would call socials. <laughs> so anyway, it's, it's, uh, it, it, if, if, you, if you know gamers at all or have ever played a board game and enjoyed it, you, you might uh, reach for that capacity that you have within you or I bet some people in your meeting must like board games <laughs> because there's, there's something very enlivening and stimulating about taking a position as Quakers as being in a kind of board game and, and the, the opponent being the economic elite. And uh, our job is to, is to win the game. You know what I mean? And uh, maybe that sounds too competitive for some of you, but, uh, but uh, George Fox will forgive you. <laughs> Mr. Warrior himself. <laughs> I wanted to ask about uh, Sweden and COVID. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, COVID. Wasn't there a response to do nothing? Uh, yeah, in Sweden, what was characteristic of Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and Iceland was uh, because th these were very high trust societies, uh, they, they, once they overcame their economic elite, they were able to create so much uh, goodness, shared prosperity, quality, and so on and so on, that people growing up in those countries assumed this is a trustworthy country. I'm part of a trustworthy uh, deci democratic decision-making process and so on and so on and so on. So I can really bank on what my country says. I can trust my country. So uh, Sweden, uh, so Sweden was the outlier, and Norway, Denmark, and Iceland, all their healthcare uh, uh, people, their healthcare uh, folks, all said, lockdown, lockdown, you know, prevent anybody from coming in the country, and so on and so on. It's a very, very severe thing. And in those three countries, uh, the people said, hey, whatever, you know, uh, well, I trust my country. And uh, have to wear masks? Okay, wear masks all the time. Okay, have to do that. Whatever they say, they know about. They know about germs. I don't know what they know about germs. So mm -hmm. those three did that. Sweden did the same thing. The Swedes, high trust society, their health people said, uh, "Nah, uh, we'll get herd immunity. It, it won't be the easiest thing, but we'll get there. So relax." And uh, people thought, "Okay." That's what our experts tell us. We'll do what they say. The sadness, of course, is that the Swedish healthcare ministry guessed wrong about this new pandemic. And so they pay for it in lives. Mm -hmm. So one thing about trust is you, 
you really, once you count on experts to guide you, you really are dependent on the, on, on the guidance. And that's, that's what happened with Sweden. They depended on the guidance like the others did, but the guidance was different. And the healthcare uh, uh, experts in the other countries were appalled when they were <laughs> asked by reporters, you know, hey, what do you think about the, what they're doing across the border in Sweden? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to us. <laughs> <laughs> but the Swedes um, followed, uh, followed, followed the way. Yeah. So that's the downside of leadership, right? We, if once we once we have a trusted leader, we can we can go over the edge with a trusted leader. And that's. Uh, but I, I I think with half a million deaths in our country, it would have been pretty wonderful to have a, and would be wonderful right now to have a trustworthy government which occasionally makes a mistake, but is mainly on our side. Wow, that's, uh, that's the time that, uh, that I was allotted for this. Um, I do invite you to read, uh, if, you're, if you're intrigued by any of this, um, the Viking economics book, which has done really, really well. Uh, it's Beck, uh, the London Times called it Book of the Week and so on. It's gotten a tremendous, uh, 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 Nordic economists had me come over there and and uh, keynote a professional conference. Um, they were so impressed with it and so on and so on. So it's done very well. And it does have the U.S. in mind as it describes the Nordic countries experiment. And the end of it is how we could implement. And then the How We Win book, which is much more of a practical sort of nuts and bolts, you know, much more of a a kind of manual on how we can change our society. Speaking and this has been, this has been really uh, cool for me to be able to hear your questions and talk to you. So George, uh, let me thank, let me thank uh, you from everyone for an, an exciting morning here. Thank you for listening to Clearly Quaker. We hope you have found this podcast thought provoking. If you have questions or comments, or would like to learn more about South Jersey Quakers, reach us at salemquarter.net.